Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Wendy Wood. She is a professor of psychology and business at the University of Southern California, and she's written for the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times. She's been in the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, Time Magazine. That's important to understand because the book I'm about to tell you about, which was really an excellent book I really loved, is is written more like a writer wrote it than a professor wrote it. Uh, and it's good to know that she's had uh, a lot of background and a lot of practice, and she just told me that her mother was an English teacher. So it uh, comes uh, well-deserved. It's a really well-written, very interesting book. It's called Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick. I'm really delighted to have Wendy with us. Wendy, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Oh, lovely to be talking to you, Peter, and thank you for the kind words about the book. Thank you for writing such a great book and for being such a good writer, and, and thanks for making the time to, to speak with us. So my first question, and I have pages of questions, we're not going to get to all of them, but my first is like, what is going on in the world right now that everybody's writing about habits? James Clear wrote Atomic Habits, Gretchen Rubin wrote Four Tendencies, Duhigg wrote The Power of Habit. I wrote Four Seconds, which is a book about habits. Why is everybody, and I don't know if you have a view of this, but why do you think, and you've done so much research on habits, why do you think this is such a hot topic right now in this world? Well, I can tell you why I started studying habits. And I think it's the same reason that other people are interested in it too, which is research and personal experience have shown that it's easy to make that initial decision to change. We do that a lot. You know, that's the basis of New Year's resolutions, um, everyone's diet plans, exercise plans, savings plans. But the persistence is hard. And so many goals in our lives, health goals, savings goals, um, in work settings, our performance goals, require persistence. You have to move beyond that initial decision and actually stick with it. And so understanding what the mechanisms are that help people stick with change, that's a different thing than understanding what gets people to change. Mm -hmm. That persistence, I think, is the whole key to so many things in life. And once you realize that these are require different psychological processes, then persistence becomes an issue in and of itself. Right. And based on what we know from neuroscience, from psychology, from behavioral economics, we've realized that the natural way people persist is they form habits. So, so that just opens up all kinds of new ways of thinking about our own behavior. And other people's. Do you feel like you're defining habits differently than other people? You, 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 you actually, in the book, go through several iterations, I feel like, because everything's a story, and, and the story develops about what a habit actually is. And I'm, I'm curious, 
Well, why don't we just start with what is your definition of a habit? I define habits in terms of mental representations. And I think that's actually pretty standard in the field. So what you picked up in the book is my progression in my own research, understanding, Mm -hmm. as I came to understand exactly what a habit is, and the data and the experiments and the experiences that led to that definition. So it's a mental representation. It's a kind of a mental shortcut is a way to think about it Mm -hmm. that helps you repeat what you've done in the past that was successful for you in the past. Doesn't mean it's going to be successful for you right now, but it's what comes to mind because it was successful in the past. And you've repeated it often enough for it to become a habit. So you make a good case in the book that it's, it's actually a part of your brain, but a different part of your brain. So it's still a part of your brain. When I think of habits in the past, I've, I've almost thought that they are, um, they are ways of shortcutting the brain, meaning you don't have to involve the brain at all. If I have a habit to brush my teeth, I'm not thinking about it. My brain's not operating. I'm just doing it. But that seems, now that I think about it, obviously the brain's involved somewhere, somehow, uh, and, and you're not, you know, you're, you might be mindless about it. You might not be mindful about it. You might be mindless about it, but it's still a brain process. Yeah, it has to be, <laughs> but, but what you are reflecting is our understanding of ourselves is only part of who we are. So our understanding is that we, we understand the thinking, conscious, experiencing part of our, ourselves, and habits aren't part of that. So you're right. In a sense, habits sort of bypass that decision-making, but they're engaging a different part of the brain that has a different way of learning right. than um, our, our conscious experiencing self. You know, it just occurred to me, there's so much that's been written about mindfulness, right? There's like so much out there and, and there's been such a focus in the world of mindfulness. And in some ways, in your book, you're advocating mindlessness. Like, you're like, like there's a way in which it's like, you know what? There's probably good usefulness for mindfulness, but there's really a lot of usefulness in mindlessness too. Well, I think that's particularly true um, for the repeated behaviors that we want to instill in our lives as the things that we do without thinking. So, and this is what we've learned from successful people is that, so, so your studies of successful leaders, I bet they are very focused on problem solving and making decisions and doing the right thing and being responsive to people. But the reason they can do that is because they've automated so many of the basic leadership skills that they're not even thinking about doing those things. Mm -hmm. So those basic skills of interacting with employees and making sure that everyone's voice gets heard, making sure people have a chance to figure out how to get on board, they understand what the broader goals are. All of those things will be structured in so that leaders can then focus on what's most important to them, 
which is the innovations that will help them move forward. Right. And, and, and again, in the case that you make for the way our thinking brain works and that we can't rely on willpower, et cetera, it's like that, you know, you use this example and it's a well-known example, you know, Obama wearing the same suit or, or Zuckerberg. It's, it's like you could save that mental energy for the hard decisions as opposed to what do I want to eat right now or what do I want to wear? Exactly. Right. But you can't just dismiss. So the, the challenge that Obama and Zuckerberg had was they sort of dismissed the habit piece, right? That was something trivial. It was something that was not important to them, what they wore. Mm-hmm. But it actually is really important. Well, with that, that, towns, that tan suit proved it to Obama. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. There so, you go. so you're saying be mindful of the habits that be mindful of what you choose to be mindless about. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because <laughs> that's that's the thing. You want you don't want everything in your, your life to be a habit, just like you don't want everything in your life to be a challenge and decision. Right. Finding the right balance. Right. And understanding that balance is really that's what's the critical point. So as I said in the beginning, there's been a lot written about habits. What are you hoping that your book is going to add to the conversation? Well, I'm a researcher and it's a science-based book. I love that you think it's a writerly book because it was meant to be that as well. But it's definitely based on the latest scientific understanding of habit. Right. And that's what differentiates it, I think, from other books in the market. And it's not focused on any specific area. So if you are concerned about saving money, it's a useful book. If you're concerned about leadership, it's a useful book. If you're concerned about health, it's a useful book. So it doesn't have a specific domain or content. Instead, it is very broadly based. Right, right. And it it does deliver on that. You start the book early by dismissing the power of willpower that um, so many of us, according to you, three quarters of Americans um, still rely on it or believe it works. Um, I, I find myself in that position too. Like I find myself when I have been undisciplined in something, berating myself and promising to be better next time and finding that um, though that doesn't seem to work, I keep at it. Uh, why, why is that? Like, why do you know? I mean, I don't know if your research has looked at this, but why do we keep, uh, relying on something that seems to really not work? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is, has to do with Americans in particular, and it's a country founded by Puritans and they followed the Protestant work ethic believe that self-denial was a value in and of itself because that's how you got to heaven. Right. So that's a piece of it. (laughs) We find Americans are really focused on self-control and um, willpower. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in addition, it's what we know, right? So you can only introspect about your own experience the habitual parts of your brain that are actually delivering that repetition and persistence, we can't really introspect about. We don't know about it. 
we're not aware of it. And so we focus on what we know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so let's let's begin to. I'm going to jump to um, to give people context. The, the sort of the bases of habit formation, right? Like your your conclusion in a sense of this is what it takes to build a habit, and then I kind of want to play with uh, play with it in example. So we could use me as an example, or we could. So you have these um, four steps. Uh, context, repetition, rewards, consistency, and then actually total control. So call it five steps. Can you just give us a sentence on each so that people have a context of, like based on all of the research and it's deep research, and this isn't, by the way, for those of you who are listening, a shortcut to not reading Wendy's book. We're talking with Wendy Wood, Good Habits, Bad Habits, because it's, you know, you write actually a little bit like Malcolm Gladwell writes in this way where the process of getting there is just as interesting as the conclusions. But give us for now the conclusions of like, give us this five-step process. Yeah. I don't know if it's five steps. I think of it in terms of three, three. But, but you're right. We separated them out somewhat in the book. Um, first is repetition. So the habitual parts of your brain learn to pick up repeated activities. It's very different than our thinking conscious selves. But habits only, that each time you do something, the habit memory is strengthened slightly. So it gets incrementally stronger. And you have to keep doing that same thing over and over to actually form a strong habit. Mm -hmm. You can't make a decision, I'm going to do it. That doesn't form a habit. Habits form through doing. The second piece is a reward. When you do something that you enjoy, you're likely to do it again in the future. So we're likely to form habits mostly for things that we actually enjoy doing, that are rewarding to us in some way. And that reward needs to be a certain kind of a reward. So it needs to be immediate because when you get a reward, your brain releases that neurotransmitter, dopamine, sometimes called happiness, chemical. Um, it does many things beyond just registering we did something that made us happy. It also ties together information and memory that actually forms that habit, ties together the information about the context you're in with what you just did, to get that reward, mm -hmm. to form that mental shortcut in your head. And then the third piece is context. That context needs to be consistent, needs to be the same context so that your brain can pick up that same. Say a word about what you mean by context, just so it's clear to people. Yeah, so context is everything around you, everything that's not you. Mm -hmm. It's the location you're in, the time of day, the um, electronics or whatever it is, technology you're dealing with, other people around you. These are all parts of your context. You want that to actually be, become associated with the behaviors in your mind mm -hmm. that you repeat on a regular basis. Like when you get up in the morning and you walk into your kitchen, if, you, if you're me at least, the first thing you think of is coffee and how to make it. You're not asking yourself, what do I do? Do I 
really want coffee. Instead, coffee and you just start. That context activates thoughts of something that's been rewarding in the past, drinking coffee. So you do what's needed automatically to get there. And, and based on the research that you've talked about, even if the coffee is not good, or even if you're tired of the coffee, you'll keep doing it. Yes. That's one of the tricks, is once habits form, you tend to repeat them, even if they're not the best thing to do in the current context, unless you have a lot of time to think and make a decision. And then, of course, we can always override our habits and do something different. But most of the time, that's just too much work. So we wake up, we make coffee, right. whether we need it this morning right. or not. Okay, I have a question about that. But before we do, you, you talked about those are the three things. You, but you've also talked about other things. You talked about consist in the book, consistency and total control. How do those fit in? The contexts that are important are ones that actually support the behavior. Mm -hmm. Ones that promote the action, make it easy. Because then again, you're more likely to repeat the action over and over. Even when you're not thinking about whether it's something you want to do. So I use an example in the book of a car I got a few, couple of years ago that had all of these fancy warning signals on it. Um, these safety devices that beeped whenever you got close to something. And I hated it to start off with and complained a lot. But after I got used to it, I didn't notice it. And then when I rented a car, it didn't have those warning devices. And the first thing I did was I backed into a brick wall. <laughs> and of course, I didn't want to do that. But the warning signals weren't there to continue to guide me. Right. And the environment shifted. I didn't notice the signals that I was getting from my old car anymore. Mm -hmm. They'd become part mm -hmm. of my automated experience. But the environment was cueing me to do the right thing, which is avoid obstacles. And I continued to respond to those messages even when I wasn't thinking about them. Mm -hmm. So that's an environment that takes the control of the behavior sort of out of your own decision-making and helps to automate it for you so that you're just responding to it. And that's what a supportive context is. Let's, let's talk about this in, in, in relation to something very specific. And I guess there's, there's two kinds of habits, like things I want to start doing and things I want to stop doing. Or I guess it means like you call it a disruption, but disrupting a habit, or, which would be, you know, stopping doing something and, and forming a habit. And so I, like I, so I'm just going to use me as an example. And I can think of any number of habits. Mostly I want to stop bad habits, which might put me, even though I'm Jewish, in the puritanical uh, mindset of like control. But so I always feel better when I'm not eating sugar. I always feel better when I'm not eating sugar. And, and, and right now I'm off sugar, right? I'm not, I'm totally 100% restricting myself, which seems to be the easiest way because otherwise I end up overeating it. And I found myself in the popcorn example, you did this great experiment with popcorn where you gave people stale popcorn that didn't taste good and they just kept eating it because they didn't interrupt their, uh, they didn't interrupt themselves and they were just following their habit of eating popcorn while watching a movie. People with strong habits 
kept eating, kept eating. even though they told us they hated the stale popcorn. People with weak habits who didn't typically eat popcorn in the movie theater, they ate, they didn't eat the stale popcorn. They only ate it when it was fresh. So it's like the habit just perpetuates. Right. So go on. Well, I feel like I'm like that with sweets. So what kind of coaching would you give me in order to, because right now I'm either all or nothing. Like I will overeat or I will not eat anything. And I would love to develop, like to, to disrupt my habit of overeating on sugar. So I could just have like a little bit of ice cream and give it up and then done and then go to the next thing and not, not have it be an all or nothing thing. So my first question is, is that a habit challenge? And then my second thing is, if it is a habit challenge, help me out. It is definitely a habit challenge. <laughs> um, so I think that um, what you've described is a habit that is causing you problems simply because of the availability of sweet things around right. us. We are constantly given sweet things to eat. Every business meeting has donuts in the middle of the table or cookies or depending on time. Yeah, it's one of the challenges, which is that you can't, in terms of context, managing the environment. And I live in New York City. So as soon as I walk out of the street, there's smells and there's stores and there's big chocolate chip cookies and windows. And, you know, you pass one ice cream store and then there's another. So it's you can't control. I can't control. I think in my mind, I can't control for at least environment. I don't know if that would be exactly the same thing as context. Um, yes, it is the same thing. Yeah. And actually, you can control that context by walking in, say, walking through Central Park instead of walking by a place where you buy frappuccinos or whatever your um, weakness is. You can also control your own personal environments by, if you have sweet things in the house, put them away and make them harder to get to. So you have to make a decision in order to access them. What the challenge for many of us is that we've gotten used to big bowls of open candy and bags of cookies on the counter in the kitchen, and we just walk by them and um, end up snacking even when we didn't intend to. Right. So there are ways to control your own environment and certainly your work environment. So create some more friction that makes it harder to do what you don't want to do. Exactly. Okay. I mean, we know how to do this in America. We've done it before. We have, at a policy level, we, we cut smoking rates more than in half since the middle of the last century. And we did it simply the way you're describing by controlling the environment, adding friction to smoking, so it's banned in all public places now, in most everywhere we go. You never don't see ads for it. There are taxes on cigarettes. It's just gotten a whole lot harder for us to smoke. That's friction. It disrupts the habits. So what do I, how do I bring rewards into this picture? Well, if you wanted to form an alternate habit, then you might find something else that you enjoy doing and substitute that for when you typically 
go for a mid-morning coffee and end up in the coffee shop with all of the cookies and the... But between um, you and me, what's a better reward in the moment than like a big scoop of like Ben and Jerry's chubby hubby? <laughs> Like, like, I mean, I don't want to just assume everyone has the same experience as I do, but, or caramel, sea salt. I, I mean, is there really, cause, ah, so cause for me, one of the challenges is the future self rewarded versus the present self right in the moment. What I want, the biggest reward in the moment is for me to eat some ice cream after the moment I will have regretted it. So it's a reward to my future self. But there's also a lot of research that says it's, you know, that's sort of a little difficult to focus on your future self versus your current present self. So what can I do? What kind of a reward that could be better than a big scoop of ice cream? The point is with the popcorn study that you might think you're responding to that reward. And when we ask people who have habits to eat popcorn in the cinema, they say they do it because they like the taste of popcorn right. and it's something they look forward to and how would you not do it? But they keep doing it even when it tastes bad and they're not getting that reward. That's true. So the point That's true. is that your explanation for your behavior may not be actually what's controlling it. What contro what's controlling your behavior is probably something more to do with the environment and the fact that you have maybe sat on that couch in the past and enjoyed bowls of ice cream and so that's what comes to mind when you sit on it again yeah it and is, that's that's a great point and great. and maybe for me i since i tend to work all the time then sitting and eating a bowl of ice cream reflects a kind of relaxation that i don't really afford myself except if i'm eating a bowl of ice cream so what you're saying is the reward to not eating that ice cream it might be to sit back and actually sit around and do nothing and relax for you know, for 10 minutes and, and read something I want to read as opposed to just eating the ice cream. And what I probably shouldn't do is replace the ice cream habit with a Netflix binging habit. And then I'll just watch Netflix for 10 minutes and then three hours later emerge from, you know, an entire season of Silicon Valley. So that's probably like you have to be careful what you reward yourself with that it doesn't throw you into another habit cycle that you're going to have to disrupt. Exactly. And you need to keep in mind that your conscious experience of what you are enjoying is not what drives your habit. Your habit is driven by the rewards you got in the past. Right? Right. It's not the way our conscious mind works. So we think we're rewarding ourselves in the present, but what we're really doing is remembering, like in, instinctively remembering a past. Exactly. Oh, it's so interesting. Um, uh, uh, you, you talked earlier about a disrupting thought, right? That you have to think. If you want to disrupt something, you, you kind of bring yourself to thinking. And I find that my habits are often prompted by emotion more than thought. So it's like a feeling, like I, I'm, draw, I'm not thinking, I could be thinking, I don't want to eat this. And yet I'm feeling like I really do want to eat this. In your view and in your research, am I making a false distinction? Is it all in your mind? Or am I having an emotional experience that may make it hard to 
counteract my intellectual experience. Do you understand my question? Does it make sense? Sort of. Um, thoughts don't disrupt habits. And so, so there are sort of two parts to your question. One was about the disruption piece. Thoughts don't disrupt habits. Changing the cues that activate habits, that's what disrupts habits. Mm -hmm. And so you, you can think about ways to change those cues in the future mm -hmm. so that your habit won't be activated. Right. Could be you don't hang around on that sofa at the times in the past when you usually ate ice cream. Right. You decide, I'm going to go for a walk in the evening instead, or um, I'm going to go out with someone and to do something else. Mm -hmm. um, all of those are competing activities that will disrupt the cues right. and put you in a different situation. So that's one answer. The second is you're talking about cues to habits being your emotions and your feelings. That's certainly possible. I mean, there's no reason why... In fact, I think for many of the behaviors that are really challenging to us, mm -hmm. there are mm -hmm. cues that come internally as well as externally, right? Controlling our cell phones, most of us just pull it out whenever we get bored or <laughs> whenever we're in a situation that we don't really want to engage with other people, then we just pull out our cell phones. So, so yes, those can become cues for behavior just like external factors can. How do we deal with, how do we create a reward for those moments of boredom? So if what I'm trying to, if what I'm trying to disrupt is my desire to pick out my phone in a moment, and what I'm feeling is bored and maybe some ennui, or I'm, I'm you know, with a group of people and the conversation lapses or whatever it is, and my, or I just go to the bathroom, and my instinct is to pull out my phone. Um, because I've got a moment where I'm not 100% occupied. And um, how, do we, how do we create reward for those moments when the replacement of that activity is boredom, which I think we've become less and less tolerant of? I think you're focusing too much on the emotion. I can't help you with that, with the boredom <laughs> that you might experience. I can help you with the behavior that's tied to that. Uh -huh. And that is disrupting cues. So in order to change that behavior, you need to make it more difficult, add friction to checking your phone, put it away, turn it off. If you turn it off, turning it on again is so time consuming that it's really pretty good friction to stopping that kind of sporadic phone checking that right. we all fall into. It's interesting. I mean, the challenge is an elevator, for example, where you may have been on the phone, you get on an elevator, and you're going to, you know, you probably, it probably doesn't make sense to turn it off and then turn it on 20 seconds later. But that's how often and that's how little we, we check our phones. Like we check our phones in 10 or 20 second increments. Like we don't really, sure. you know, and For so 50 times today and 50 times. Yeah, exactly. Because we, we, you know, as soon as we get off the elevator, we're going to need our phones again. So you're saying we turn off our phone, maybe going into an elevator is a cue to turn off our phone and reaching the floor is a cue to turn on the phone. I think every time you stop using your phone, you put it away. Right. You turn it off. Right. 
make it difficult to access. And if that is your habit, then you're not going to be one of these people who sporadically checks their phone 50 times a day. Right. You'll pull it out the 10 times a day you actually need it, and you'll invest the effort to, to use it. And so is there, when you think of rewards in a situation like that, what would the, how would you, how would you manufacture an, a reward around a behavior like that? Why is that necessary? Well, I'm just thinking about your model of these three things. That's not the challenge. It's not. That's so, not the challenge. Challenge is disrupting the habit. And if you want to disrupt an existing habit, what you have to do is change the cues. That's the easiest way. Oh, okay. So it's, if you are I get it. Relying, if you're relying on willpower to change a habit, you're lost. Because that habit memory is going to stick around much longer than your desire right. to change it. So of the, of, of the three things that you talked about, it's probably for disrupting a habit, it's creating that friction and repetition that's more important than reward exactly. for disrupting a habit. Exactly. For creating a habit, you need the reward. Yes. Um, so let me ask you one last question. I know we're um, having so much fun and there's like a million other things we could talk about and maybe we do this again at some point. I'm curious, and I don't know if your research has looked into this, but I'm curious about deeply ingrained habits of thought, like acting with a survival instinct or not trusting other people. Like you say, I just have a habit of not trusting you. Do you have any experience in changing habits of thought or disrupting habits of thought? Would you follow the same rules? Have you looked into that? I haven't studied habits of thought simply because um, it's not clear that people necessarily learn those in the same way that they learn habitual behaviors. Mm -hmm. It's possible. Right. But there's just not much research on that topic. Right. So I don't know. Right. <laughs> That's a, you know, not knowing is also a really good way to end something because there's a lot, there's like so much depth here. And, and the drive to all research, which you've done so well, is to keep getting to that place of not knowing and then exploring and finding more out, which you did a lot in terms of habits. We've been talking with Wendy Wood. Her book is Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick. My challenge to you as you're listening is, you know, hopefully this was an interesting conversation. Make it useful by thinking about one habit today that you may want to integrate into your life or one habit that you may want to disrupt and think about these three rules that Wendy, these, this process in a sense of context, repetition, and rewards and, and play with it and, and let us know uh, how, yeah. how, uh, how it works for you and what you're running into. Wendy, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Great fun. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles. 
at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.